Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. Uh, we have here a very special guest today, Dr. Dilip Jeste. And uh, he doesn't need an introduction, but I would like him to introduce himself briefly in any way he sees fit. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jeste. Thank you, Arash. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on your show. The honor is all mine. Thank you. Thank you. So how would you introduce yourself here? Sure. So I am a geriatric psychiatrist and neuroscientist. Uh, I am professor of psychiatry and neurosciences and director of the Institute for Research on Aging at University of California, San Diego. And I do research uh, in mental illnesses in older people. But for the last 15 years or so, I have also been focusing on successful aging and especially wisdom. That's wonderful. And so um, before we get started, I want to talk about your book in a moment. But how would you say when we talk about healthy aging and successful aging, what does that include? It's more than just doing crossword puzzles or being active, right? So why would you say kind of briefly, what are the main ingredients for healthy aging? And how do we know we are aging in a healthy way? What healthy aging means is higher well-being, mm -hmm. contentedness, mm -hmm. being happy. That is a critical part. Often, people think about healthy aging as meaning that they have no illnesses. That's not healthy aging. Healthy aging means being contented, happy, having a greater sense of well-being. Because people in a wheelchair, people with cancer, they can be happy. They can feel that they are aging successfully. On the other hand, a perfectly healthy person may be depressed and suicidal. That is not healthy aging. So the point here is that it is psychological and subjective. How you feel is more important than any objective measure of your aging. I love the clarification. Now, just something that um, I was very interested in, I started doing intermittent fasting and uh, Dr. Matt Matson talks about that and how that increases also longevity. And it is could be part of healthy aging if we do it uh, again uh, long enough. And uh, is, is there a, a basis to this? Do you agree with this? I'm, I'm sorry, I missed that part. So intermittent fasting that has uh, positive fasting. effects on our brain, on our body, and in terms of aging as well. Sure, no, I, I think that is important. So because we should try to have a healthy lifestyle. Healthy lifestyle means we have physical activity, cognitive activity, social activity, sleep well, and have good nutrition. One of the key points is that obesity is not healthy mm -hmm. because it leads to a bunch of physical and other problems. So one of the ways to avoid obesity is through intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. Calorie restriction is, has been shown to be a strategy for healthy aging in numerous animal species, almost every species in which it has been studied. So calorie restriction is good, but of course not calorie restriction to an extreme. We're not talking about people who lose weight totally and then become very thin, that, that's not good. But we often eat calories 
not because we need them, but because we like the taste of the food. And so that's where calorie restriction comes into play. And one way of calorie restriction is intermittent fasting. And in many cultures and even religions, intermittent fasting is emphasized as a part of religion. For example, I grew up in India and a uh, number of people in the family would fast on a given day, say Tuesday or Saturday. There is some reason for that, some religious reason. But I found that actually that was a good idea because then that forced them to not eat for most of that day. And that kind of intermittent fasting can be helpful. And what it has done for me over the past years that I've tried it, I have learned how to control myself much better. And I was obese and now I'm overweight and I'm slowly, slowly getting to, to a healthy weight. But I think it was very helpful uh, for me. And so uh, your book is Wiser, the Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion and What Makes Us Good. Uh, it's very fascinating to talk and you say wellness that is hugely important in my world. I think a lot of um, um, psychologists, psychiatrists and medical doctors are more focused on disease and treating disease instead of boosting and increasing wellness. And the second thing that I want to quickly mention before we dive into your, your book is um, philosophy, which is something I'm very interested in as well. And so combining them together is just perfect as music to my ears. So let's talk a bit about your book. Thank you. So the book is about wisdom. So wisdom is a personality trait. Now, wisdom, when we talk about wisdom, most people think about it as a religious or philosophical construct. And it has been that since the times immemorial, we have all the religious scriptures that include uh, wisdom, philosophies include wisdom, but wisdom is also a scientific construct. The scientific research on wisdom started about 40 years ago at Max Planck Institute in Berlin and University of Southern California in Los Angeles. The good news is that it has been growing. The research is growing. More and more papers are getting published. However, most of those studies have been done by gerontologists, sociologists, psychologists, which is great. But physicians, especially psychiatrists and neuroscientists have stayed away from them. And when I got starting, so when I got started for doing research in wisdom, it struck me that there is so little research from psychiatric and neuroscientific perspective that that's something I need to do, I want to do. Do you and know why, sorry, do you know why they turned away? What would be the reason here? Was it not deemed scientific for them? Yeah. Yeah, I think what happened over centuries, the hardcore researchers don't like fuzzy constructs, things that cannot be defined well. For example, for centuries, people dismiss stress as anything biological. They say, oh, stress. Um, it's not really a scientific construct. It is how you feel. They said the same thing about consciousness. Mm -hmm. Consciousness is a philosophical, psychological construct. Today, we know the neurobiology of consciousness inside out. They said the same thing about resilience, for example. Today, we know the molecular biology of resilience. And wisdom comes in the same category. People dismiss it because they say, oh, wisdom, what is wisdom? You, you know, how can you define it? How can you measure it? Well, the goal should be 
to try to define it and try to measure it and look at its biological roots. So that is how I started uh, working on wisdom. And so we have been doing this research for 15 years. And so this is my first book for general public. Mm -hmm. I published a number of papers in peer-reviewed journal, but I really thought it was time to talk about wisdom with the general public, to both present what we have been doing, but also seek their input. So I become wiser with their input and do a better job. There's the conception that wisdom comes automatically. And so we think of old and wise. But when I look around, I see senior citizens who are not wise, even though they have reached that age. So there has to be another or other factors that play to what is also important here that we need to keep in mind. That's an excellent point. Uh, so wisdom, as I said, is a personality trait. Most traits are about 50% inherited, but 50% are determined by environment and behavior. And when I say 50%, I don't mean very rigidly 50%, you know, if it's one third to two third, but roughly 50%, half of that. And your point is well taken that not all older people are wiser. Oscar Wilde said that he said wisdom comes with aging, but sometimes aging comes alone. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, there are some older people who are very unwise and some young people who are very wise. But still, by and large, wisdom does increase with aging in many people, not in all, but in many people. And if you look at the components of wisdom, I think we all will relate that actually we get better. Again, most of us, not all of us, but most of us do better. I think one of the things for me, wisdom is also learning from our experiences and mostly from our mistakes. And however, many people do not accept their mistakes and they're losing out on such a great learning opportunity and growth and also growth in wisdom. And I think they're missing out on this. You're absolutely right. I think experience helps, but the question is what do you do with the experience? Mm -hmm. So if I have, if I make a mistake and it's a bad experience, I can just blame other people or environment for that and move on. That doesn't help me. Mm -hmm. If I stopped and said, maybe I did something wrong in this process, what did I do wrong? And how can I do better? So if I learn from the experience, I will become wiser. If I just take it for granted, blame somebody else, that's not going to help me. Mm -hmm. uh, I am thinking of Socrates, just again, uh, philosophy and how he said that, again, it's ignorance that's causing, that's the issue here. And ignorance is not bliss. We need to have wisdom. And with that, we will solve a lot of issues and we can become good, the path towards goodness. Would you agree with Socrates here? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is so true. Uh, Socrates said that any person who thinks he is wise is a fool because a wise person knows how much he or she does not know. Mm -hmm. We have scope for improvement. We need to learn more. We need to get better. So that is critical, understanding our limitations, but also having a positive attitude that we can do something to get better. What are some other uh, um, traits, as you're saying, and other ways of, of increasing wisdom? I, I read a book called Science of Evil. So when we talk about good and evil by uh, Dr. Simon Baron Cohen, 
And he is, uh, although he talks about evil at the beginning of the book, most of the book is related to empathy and lack of it and the empathy circuit in our brain. So how important is empathy here in relation to wisdom? I think it is critical. So as I said, wisdom is a personality trait with several different components. Uh, there are about six of them that are important. Three are most important. Mm -hmm. The most important one is empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. Now, empathy means understanding or sharing somebody's emotions or thought. Compassion means acting on it and helping another person or a group. So empathy and compassion are the single most important component of wisdom. Second one is emotional regulation. Control over the emotions. Mm -hmm. Think about a teenager. His emotions fluctuate hour to hour, minute to minute. And think about a wise older person who is calm, controlled, doesn't get referred too easily, doesn't panic, so on, right? So that is emotional regulation. The third one, which is also very important, is self-reflection. Ability to look inward, ability to understand ourselves. Because we have to understand ourselves if we are going to get better. And understanding ourselves means understanding our strengths and understanding our limitations. See where we need help and how we can do better. So those are the three most critical components of wisdom, empathy, compassion, emotional regulation, and self-reflection. But there are also others that are also useful. One is acceptance of uncertainty and diversity of perspectives. Where I have strong values about something, but it is okay for somebody else to have different value system. I don't have to agree with that person. That person doesn't have to agree with me, but we can respect each other's ability or right to have different perspectives. And that's one thing that is sadly missing in today's world when it is becoming so polarized that Somebody who doesn't agree with us is either dumb or evil. That's the way we, and that's not really uh, a part of wisdom. At the same time, while we accept uncertainty and diversity, we have to be decisive when time calls for it. So decisiveness is also an important component of wisdom. We cannot be sitting on the fence all the time that we can't decide. But decisiveness does not mean making quick decision. No, you have to have time. So make a rational decision. Sometimes you have to make it very quickly. Sometimes it can wait for one day, one month, whatever it is. And the last one, which is rather controversial, is spirituality. Spirituality is different from religiosity. Mm -hmm. um, a an atheist can be spiritual. Spirituality to me means feeling constantly connected with something or someone that we don't see or hear or feel. You may call it spirit, you may call it soul, consciousness, God, whatever you call that. But it's a sense of or faith in something like that is useful. But there are some people who don't like the word spirituality and I wish actually there were a better word than spirit. But unfortunately the word is there and whatever it is, I think that sense of connectedness with something is, I think, useful for reducing one's loneliness, for example. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. yeah there, there's so much I want to comment upon, but um, just one thing about here also spirituality and uh, the uh, different perspectives. What has been very helpful for me has been my life in, in that. So because I, I was born in Iran, I speak five languages, I've traveled a lot. And so I think that has really opened my mind to seeing things in different ways, to thinking in different ways. And uh, how do you think was that influential with your own upbringing and your own um, beliefs, cultural beliefs, and just growing up in, in a diverse environment, how beneficial has that been for, for these concepts here? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point. I mean, as I said, so I was born and brought up in India. I was there, uh, I went to medical school there, and then I moved to the States because I wanted to do research in brain and mind. And so this is a make-up research, so NIH, so that's why I came here. And I found that the two cultures in some ways are so different. Mm -hmm. uh, Indian culture, probably more like Iranian culture in the sense, it is more focused on interdependence that we work with. So very close family ties, close community ties. Whereas in the US, it is more independence. Individuality is important. Mm -hmm. And so, and again, each has its pluses, minuses. There's nothing right or wrong. And what we need is a balance between the two. Uh, similarly, Indian culture is more fatalistic in the sense you accept what is in the life that nothing you can, you know. And so, so that helps you accept bad things because you say bad things, you know, that, that was meant to, to be. The American culture on the other hand is more can do, I can do this. Mm -hmm. I won't accept something just because it is given by faith. I will fight it. And that's good because you fight it. At the same time, you have to accept where you cannot. And so, I found, so in the beginning, there was this culture shock mm -hmm, uh, and shock, yes. challenge. But as I grew up here, actually I found that this was very helpful that I could find a balance between the two. And in a way, serenity prayer actually is a good balance mm -hmm. that give me the serenity to accept the thing that I cannot change, grace to change the thing that I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I think that really is a good mixture of the two cultures. Very wise words, words, I think, those words of knowing that difference. And I love both. I love, and I don't know why people are thinking I have to choose one. And I love the word balance. It's really finding what works best in that situation and not being just stuck in one way of thinking. One thing I was surprised though, I think there is research and uh, as a neuroscientist, I'd like to know your input about this, that the brain structure of these different people from different cultures is, is, is different, they vary. So that um, also it's not just their upbringing, but it's also the way of thinking. And so, uh, and there are different studies they, they did to show uh, they look more for independent answers to classifying things, their mind, if you're given like a, a triplet of words, like uh, was monkey, panda, and banana, uh, the Westerners would say monkey and panda because they're both animals. Whereas uh, Easterners or collectivistic cultures would look at the relationship between the food and the monkey and they would say monkey and banana. And I found that fascinating because if their thinking is different, we have to accommodate for that. And we can't just insist on one way and they insist on another way. And both are right. Essentially, both are right. That, that is correct. And there's no question that there are some differences. <laughs> However, you also need to remember that brain can and does change. Brain is not fixed. Even the structure can change and does change. 
For example, we all know that physical activity, exercise helps. The gray matter volume has been shown to increase with the physical activity. Not only physical activity, things like meditation, mindfulness have biological effects on the brain. Studies have shown, for example, that uh, practicing meditation for a period of time increases the integrity of the white matter in the brain. So, so to some extent, yes, you know, we are all born with certain kind of brain structure and function, but we do have some control over that. It's not infinite control, but we can change it. So again, it's, so, so we have, uh, again, it's like serenity prayer. So some things we can't change, but some things we can. And so we can't blame our brain structure we were born with for what we are doing, because we can still change it to some extent. And so, so with empathy, though, there are certain people who, who are born without empathy and um, psychopaths who do not have those kind of feelings and perhaps narcissists as well to an extent where they cannot put themselves in, in another person's shoes and emotions. So how can we deal with, with those situations, extreme situations? That's a great point. That's a really great point. Now, there have been neurobiological studies of empathy and compassion. And so that's what we also looked at, what is the neurobiology of wisdom. And we found that certain areas of the brain are clearly involved. There is a prefrontal cortex, <laughs> yeah. which is the newest part of the brain in evolution. And within that, there is a dorsolateral and ventromedial. And I don't want to become jargonish, but all I want to say is that the way I describe it in a simplistic fashion is part of that is like proverbial father that is very strict, disciplinary. You must do this or you'll get punished. Part of it is more like a mother, kind, compassionate, helpful. You forgive others, you forgive yourself if you make a mistake. And in a way, what we need is a balance between the two because we need to be compassionate to ourselves, to others and nice. But at the same time, we have to get things done. We, we need discipline. Right. So what happens for in psychopaths that they have some, so there is some biological basis for sociopathy. And the basis is not just sort of looking at the brain. You won't be able to see differences. It's more sort of the chemicals in the brain or synapses, the connections. So it is rather subtle differences that are there. Uh, and still, we don't know enough about neuroscience. You know, science is growing and we'll know much more. But I do think it is partly biologically based, but partly also environmentally determined. If one is born in a family, you know, in a mafia family, and that's all you see, clearly it's going to be hard to develop compassion. Some people can, but for many people, it will be hard. But the thing I want to stress is it is possible to increase empathy and compassion. It's not possible in every single person, but in a majority of people, it is possible provided they want to change. That is critical. There must be motivation mm -hmm. and self-discipline to want to change. You, you can't force a change on somebody. So you can't- Exactly. Right, so if you put a sociopath you know, in prison and you say, that we will release you if you become more compassionate. It will work only if he really wants to do that, undergoes the training and follows all the guidelines that are needed. 
And we, we see it with people who say they want to stop smoking and then they don't actually want to. So it's like they don't want to change. They still want to continue with it. And it's, again, really important. The onus is on oneself to, to look for that change. And so something that I was struck by is the, the word path is uh, used as both in terms of feeling or disease. It's uh, this, this Greek word. And I find that very interesting because you also mentioned emotional regulation, something I'm very, very fascinated about. And so could it be that um, these are feelings that are not processed, that are not dealt with? These are traumatic feelings that may lead to psychopathy and or psychotic diseases. And the other word, the word disease means you're not in ease, you're not in balance. So your body and mind is not in balance. So uh, what would you say to that? That's a, a very good point. Um, there is no question that um, bad experiences, bad feeling, something traumatic that happens to you will impact your body structure and function, including that of the brain. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that also means that we can change it because if something bad makes it bad, something good can make it better, mm -hmm. right? So, and also the other thing to keep in mind is Often the things are presented in a way in a simplistic fashion that you find an example of somebody who had bad experience and then that person became psychotic, let us say. So you say the experience caused psychosis. That's probably an overstretch because mm -hmm. it's very likely that the person had some genetic predisposition and then had some other thing that were going on. And then this became kind of the last straw on the camel's back rather than causing it. So there are things that precipitate something, but they don't necessarily are causes of, of, of that condition. But the important point is that we should also focus on wellness, well-being. And this is something I felt for a long time. So I was president of the American Psychiatric Association 10 years ago. And I said that psychiatry, if you open that book, if you look at definition of psychiatry, it is defined as branch of medicine that focuses on study and treatment of mental illnesses. And I said, that is true to some extent, clearly. People with mental illnesses go to psychiatrists, we treat them, they get better. But we should be experts in mental health, not in mental illness only. 20% people have mental illness, 100% people have mental health. Everybody has mental health. And so we really need to expand our work and think about not just diseases, what are their symptoms, what is the pathology and how we treat them with drugs or other things. We should also think about positive things, resilience, optimism, wisdom, compassion, social engagement, well-being. How do we make people happy? And that's why, so that's what I call positive psychiatry, which is going beyond illnesses and talking about mental health including positive mental health. I love it. This is something that I've always felt is a gray area. So we are looking when people are depressed and they've been sad for a long time and they fulfill all the requirements, they go and get help. And then people who are fine or who are mildly depressed, they don't go because they say, I don't need it. And I think what the focus should be, like in, in diseases, we see that too. We want to uh, focus on prevention. And I think that should be the same in the mental field as well, in the mental health field, to promote 
wellness and healthy living and a healthy mind and uh, mental health. I, I, and I think that's missing in many cases when I, when I look around. Absolutely. You know, you hit the nail on its head. That's exactly right. We should be focusing on prevention. I think because if you think about what is happening to the world, you know, the population is growing. It'll continue to grow. And right now, our healthcare system, we have one patient being seen by one physician at a time. Uh, and then, of course, the other nurses, social workers, etc. the help. This system is not going to work because the number of healthcare professionals is not increasing fast enough to take care of so many people who need help. And we should not focus only on treating diseases. There are many people who don't who are not diagnosed with a disease, but they are unhappy. They are stressed out. We need to do. We need to help them. So the medicine needs to go, medicine, including psychiatry, need to go beyond our characteristic definition of diseases that are diagnosed and treated, that we should focus on how we can improve the mental health of everybody, the whole population, and prevent diseases. So you said it very well. Thank you. And I think the pandemic has shed light on these things, because people, I think, who were suffering before, it just increased it. And so, and we see that with see, I think the polarization, the behavior, the anger, the madness, I think a lot of it was there, but now it just kind of like exploded because now it had a way of, of coming out. And something that I'm fascinated with, and you mentioned when you mentioned the father and mother, for me, psychoanalysis has been very life-changing and life-altering in, in, in a very liberating way because I found it as a way of dealing with these images that we have of ourselves and of our parents who are in our mind, in the, in the unconscious. And I think in a way, what the pandemic is doing is bringing out the unconscious, which is looks very ugly, but it can also be therapeutic. That I, absolutely, you, you said it very well again. I think there's the one thing which seems so surprising and yet it makes sense. So when the COVID, so I'm a geriatric psychiatrist, as I said, when the COVID started, you remember in the, in the beginning, the reports of deaths in nursing homes, Older people were clearly at the highest risk of developing complications, being hospitalized, needing ICU, ventilator, and then dying. The mortality is so much higher in older people with COVID than in younger people. And then the social distancing guidelines started. And that made it even harder on older people because they didn't have access to technology. Younger people were fine. They could use FaceTime. They had social media, you know, they, they could connect with other older people couldn't. So the expectation was that older people, we will see much more depression, anxiety, stress, and what I view. You know what we found? What people found? Older people did much better than younger ones. Yes, psychologically. Mm -hmm. uh, these are amazing numbers. So actually we published a comment in JAMA about that. But in one study, 5,000 Americans, okay? They looked at anxiety, depression, and stress level, okay? In various groups. In people over the age of 65, the incidence was 15%, one five. How much was it between 18 and 25? 75%. Younger people were five times more likely to have anxiety, depression, or stress compared to older people during 
COVID. Now, why older people should have done much worse? Because I said they have real worry about physical problem and they didn't have access to technology younger people had. That's where wisdom of aging comes into play. <laughs> that older people, and we interviewed people. So we have been doing studies in this, some of the retirement communities and so on. And we asked them, how did they tackle it? And they said, well, when it happened, he said, yeah, sure. I mean, this is a big problem, it's a crisis, but we have been through crisis before. We have, some of them had been through wars. Some of them had been through droughts, flooding, earthquake, tsunami, uh, and previous, you know, other epidemics and what have you. And they said, we, we survived and we know this will survive this one too. But younger people, this was the aftershock. They had never seen anything like that. Suddenly they found that there was crisis. They had no control over what was happening because they were prohibited from going and talking to other people. And they, so although they had social media and so on, they really felt so helpless, so anxious, so depressed. So the rates of suicide and opioid use climbed in younger people, not in older people. Mm -hmm. So that's a great example about Ken, how wisdom of aging can be helpful. I think with, with age too, and if you are actively living and introspection, as you're saying, is hugely important and learning from experiences and mistakes and so on, it gives you a lot of resources. So they have this toolbox that they can use. And like you're saying, they've been through situations like this and they say, well, I know how to deal with it. It's not that bad. And is there also a natural way though of contentment that happens with age? Because I, I've seen studies where say, for example, like younger adults are suffering more from stress and which makes sense because of all the pressures that we have. Whereas okay. when you get to a, a different age, you already, if you've consolidated your relationships and you, you're happy with your job, there's like sense of contentment that kind of uh, flows into your way of being. Is that true? Is there a scientific basis to that? Yeah, I think there's no question about that, that with aging, there is more acceptance, more well-being, and it is partly biological. Now, that may come as a surprise, mm -hmm. but it is true. You know, our brain, when I went to medical school, actually, I was taught that the only thing that happens to brain with aging is that it shrinks. Mm -hmm. It loses neurons, synapses, blood vessels, everything. That's not entirely true. In people who stay active, physically, cognitively, mentally, socially, in people who stay active, the brain continues to evolve. That's new synapses form, new neurons even form in some regions of the brain, not everywhere, but in some regions. And there are changes that are conducive to doing better in old age. For example, again, without going into you know, jargonish uh, <laughs> language. Studies have shown, studies with brain imaging, that in older people, amygdala, amygdala is the center of emotion. It responds very well to positive stimuli, just like in younger people. But it does not respond enough to negative or adverse stimuli, unlike younger people. That's very fascinating because what we find is like a lot of people, it's like the amygdala hijacks the, the reasoning, the prefrontal cortex is kind of blocks it. And so if that happens, then you couldn't have calm and that explains it biologically, as you're saying. That, that's exactly right. So like we said, younger people, their minds are like Velcro to adverse experiences. 
older people minds are like teflon so they and that comes from biology but also partly from experience you know that you have been through stressful periods when everything looked bleak and you came out of that so um so there's clearly this contentment that happens and so if we keep ourselves active we will do better and um what about the view of uh the elderly and senior citizens in the, in the western society there seems to be a lack of respect compared to other cultures where they are veneered and revered and so on we we see that and it's kind of dismissive like you are not contributing to society anymore and you're not useful and which is kind of a capitalistic way of thinking i think because you can't make money so you're not productive anymore and how can we change that because it seems quite ingrained absolutely you're right so that is the ageism mm-hmm. that ageism. you know we have racism sexism we also have strong racism and it is almost universal although in eastern cultures it doesn't it is much less so for example where i when i grew up we respected older people mm-hmm. and thought that older people were wiser and whereas in eastern cultures uh, rather western culture that thought to be burden on the society you know the number people are living longer so the number of older people is increasing in the media that is called silver tsunami as if this is a disaster that is happening that we are having more older people you know it's funny but it's tragic also that everybody wants to live longer but nobody wants to be old how can that happen when we live longer we are getting older so it is because of that perception about aging that aging because people equate aging with physical decline mm-hmm. and that's why they say that older people cost more to the society and if we didn't spend enough money on them we will have more money for the younger people this happened during covid actually some mm-hmm. of the political leaders said why are we wasting money on nursing home i mean how much how long these people are going to live and i just wanted to say that wait till you are 80 and 90 and then what will you say about uh, people in your age group so it is so and it is wrong not because it is un- morally wrong it is factually wrong studies show that when older people stay active when we help them to stay active they are healthier the diseases are delayed disabilities are delayed that saves us money and the best thing older people can do is to help younger people again numerous studies have shown that intergenerational activity older people helping younger ones are helpful for both the generation so this ageism got to be replaced yes, with yes. supporting intergenerational activities yes Yes, I completely agree. I think that is really the solution here. Part of healthy aging is also to go with your age. So I find that people who are in the 30s and 40s, they don't seem to accept that and they like to dress like they were a teen. And so it's it's kind of that conception like we don't get older and we don't like to accept the fact that we are getting older. And you get it with with famous people who have the money who do plastic surgery and botox and that's also common common people do that as well. and i find that you are deluding yourself it's like the person who's like working all their life and they say once i get to retirement i will enjoy my life and they get to retirement and they have no idea what to do with their lives and they wasted all those years so for me healthy aging is at any age of being and 
at your age that you have and accepting it and accepting the challenges that come at that specific moment? Right. I think clearly, I mean, one has to accept the things that, so at 60, you do not have the energy and physical health of a 20 year old. So to feel bad about that or try to be like a 20 year old is wrong. I mean, it's, it's not going to work out unnecessarily. To think about the strengths you have, mm-hmm. that we, who wants to be in 20s again? I mean, think about the stress we all had in the 20s. So we are lucky that actually we have lived through 60, 70, 80, 90, whatever it is, and then let us make use of that. So I agree with you in the sense one shouldn't, uh, but I think it comes because of partly because of the ageism in the society, mm-hmm. that people judge a person by the chronological age. Mm-hmm. But chronological age doesn't tell us too much. Chronological age, in the sense, years after birth, that is objective. But it doesn't tell us anything about the biological age of a person. Doesn't say anything about the psychological mm-hmm. or brain age of a person. Those are different. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so I just want to mention also clearly, so you are a professor of psychiatry and neurosciences. You're the director of uh, the Center for Healthy Aging at the University of California, San Diego, and the former president of the American Psychiatric Association. And you are also uh, the first Asian American to, to be so. So that is wonderful also of, of, of uh, groundbreaking, I would say, of, of, of breaking stereotypes that people have. So that is also wonderful. And your book is Wiser, the Scientific Roots of Wisdom, Compassion, and What Makes Us Good. Thank you for such an awesome discussion, such insightful, such wisdom. It is uh, it is just wonderful to see that you're doing this work. And I also like it that you are writing a, a book for, for, the, for the public, not just here for medically trained, because we all need to know this and we all need to benefit from it. Thank you so much for being on Arash's World today. Thank you so much, Arash. It's a pleasure and an honor being here. And I have heard your other podcasts and they're great. And you're doing a terrific job in terms of helping people live in a healthy fashion. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. Thank you.